If you're enjoying Bradbury 100, please search for my YouTube channel, Bradbury 101, where I review Ray's books and films. And why not check out my other podcast, Science Fiction 101, where we explore science fiction from all angles. Find Science Fiction 101 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the life and work of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Hello and welcome once again to Bradbury 100. You may recall last time we looked at a Bradbury story which had slipped into the public domain... It was the 1947 Rocket Summer, published in Planet Stories, and never again reprinted. Well, in that same issue of Planet Stories, spring 1947, there is tucked away a supposed bio of Ray Bradbury, a little biography, which, like the rest of the magazine, is now in the public domain, because the copyright in the magazine wasn't renewed 28 years after publication, which would normally have been the case. So that's what we're going to look at today. This supposed bio is attributed to Bradbury himself, and I have no reason to believe otherwise. But Ray doesn't waste his words on a straightforward, factual bio. Instead, he goes into a bit of self-parody. I'll read the entire article to you shortly. It's not a very long piece at all. But just before I do that, I'll give you a sense of the way in which the story Rocket Summer was presented in the magazine. And after I've read the bio article, I'll give you a rundown on all the people who Ray name-checks in the article. For now, you just need to know that every name you're going to hear is a real author, some more famous than others, but he knew every single one of these people personally. Rocket Summer was published in the spring 1947 issue of Planet Stories. Bradbury's name was on the cover of the magazine, but it wasn't the headline name. The headline name was given to a story called Sword of the Seven Sons by Gardner F. Fox. Does anyone remember Gardner F. Fox? Bradbury's story was kind of in the middle of the table of contents, not highlighted, not hidden. It was accompanied by a illustration that spread across two pages, and the illustration was by Doolin and Vestal. And it basically shows a future cityscape with copters and skyships. So it's an illustration inspired by the story, but not particularly tied to it in a narrative sense. The penultimate page of the story has a second illustration by the same artist. And this shows the crowd cheering at the return of the rocket ship. And we see two of the crew of the moon rocket, but with their backs to us. They look a little bit ape-like, but their faces are hidden. So this one is actually illustrating a scene from the story. On page 100 of the magazine, after the end of the story, is P.S.'s feature flash. P.S. being Planet Stories. 
Planet Stories feature flash. And this is what it says. Flashing you the highlights on two of the cosmic-minded writers who helped to nourish Planet Stories. They need no introduction to you unless you're new to Planet Stories pages, in which case step right up and meet Ray Bradbury and Henry Hassey, both of whom have stories in this issue. And then there is a column written by Bradbury. So this is 26, 27-year-old Ray Bradbury telling the readers something about himself. So I'm going to read this entire article. As I've pointed out innumerable times to friends and readers, I am not responsible for my stories in any way, shape or form. Lee Brackett writes them all for me. I only collect the cheques. This has been going on for years, and don't you wish you had a set-up like mine? I merely lounge about, sucking languidly upon my water pipe, occasionally flicking Miss Brackett lightly across her curvesome spine with my riding crop, and letting her worry about whether, in the next scene of the story, we shall have the hero or heroine wrestling upon a polar bear rug or a leopard skin. Sometimes this causes a bit of a crisis. Different types of rugs make a great difference in the tone of a story, you know, and we sometimes spend days ruminating over this problem. When Lee Brackett isn't writing my stories for me, it's usually Henry Cutner. Cutner is a harmless sort of fellow, usually seen a few paces to the right of the nearest pile of cigarette butts, nervously fretting his moustache. Cutner turns out at least two stories a year for me and keeps my hookah replenished with imported mineral water. It's only fair at this time I mention Ross Rocklin. He does my problem stories for me. We are now collaborating on a story in which the hero must work out a mathematical formula for kicking his way out of a gigantic paper bag. It's a story of immense possibilities, and that dry rattling sound you hear is Mr Rocklin over in the far corner thrashing about in a large paper jerkin into which I have just sealed him. After this story, we're considering the possibility of doing a yarn on some space voyagers lost in an improbably immense cyclopean latrine. I refuse to reveal any of the plot at this time. You'll have to wait. Now we come to Robert Heinlein, Jack Williamson and Edmund Hamilton. I must admit Heinlein escaped me some years ago and has been busy at more important things, but there was a time when he did some of my sociological stuff. Williamson has been a problem. He is a tedious, thoughtful worker and spends sometimes as much as six months on one of my stories. Then, by George, he turns about and sells it under his own name. Footling of him, isn't it? Hamilton is something else again. He's turned out two million words for me in the past month. He's slipping. It used to be three, and sometimes four when I kept him supplied with sherry. I believe that lists pretty well the members of the corporation. My writing has been a series of double plays, much in the famed manner of Tinker to Evers to Chance of baseball history. It's been from Cutner to Hamilton to Brackett to Heinlein, with Rocklin as gargantuan substitute and Williamson issuing forth a gentle word of praise on occasion. Writing has been a series of ricochets and pursuits. The above-named authors are lean and rangy from long years of flight through the rear exits of walk-up apartments when Ray Bradbury walked in the front door with a new manuscript held in his teeth. You understand now, don't you, what a snap it has been? When you have good friends such as these to do your work for you, how can you fail? You can't. 
Oh, yes, I was born in Waukegan, Illinois, in 1920. Kuttner was only seven at the time, so I doubt if he had anything to do with it. Though there is some talk of Hamilton, who was a more mature lad of 14 at the time. Eh? Ray Bradbury. So that's Ray Bradbury's parody of a biography from spring 1947 Planet Stories. I doubt that there is a single true word in the entire piece, but uh, who were all those people? Let's have a look. Henry Hasse was one of Ray's earliest collaborators. In fact, Ray's very first professionally published story was a co-write with Henry Hasse. It was called Pendulum, and it appeared in Super Science Stories in 1941. Hasse was just a few years older than Ray, but he had already taken a couple of steps further in a professional writing career. He was quite prolific with his short stories from the 1930s through to the 1950s, but he only ever had one book published, which was the novel The Stars Will Wait. Hasse died in 1977 at the age of 64. The second person Ray mentions is Lee Brackett. Now, Lee Brackett was one of Ray's closest writer friends, and again, just a few years older than Ray was. She and Ray officially collaborated on just one story, Lorelei of the Red Mist, published in Planet Stories in 1946. So that's one year before this particular bio was written. Actually, though, Lee Brackett wrote the beginning of Lorelei of the Red Mist, and Ray wrote the ending. The collaboration came about simply because she had landed a better job. She was off to Hollywood, writing the screenplay for The Big Sleep. And there were other occasions where Brackett and Bradbury helped each other out, but without sharing the writer credit. So Ray's story, The Scythe, for instance, is mostly written by Ray, but part of it is written by Brackett, but it's just credited to Ray on his own. Lee Brackett managed to sustain a dual career with some amazing success in Hollywood. She worked with William Faulkner on the screenplay for The Big Sleep, and, of course, with the director Howard Hawks. She, a couple of decades later, wrote The Long Goodbye for Robert Altman, and she ended her screenwriting career as one of the credited screenwriters of Star Wars The Empire Strikes Back. Her prose fiction encompassed crime fiction, science fiction, fantasy, and you'll sometimes see her referred to as the Queen of Space Opera because of her effective and influential stories set on Mars and Venus and elsewhere. And she was, by the way, the first female author to be shortlisted for a Hugo Award in that male-dominated field of science fiction. She passed away in 1978 after completing her work on Empire Strikes Back, but before the film was shot. Henry Cutner is the next author mentioned by Ray. Henry Cutner was an author friend of Ray, again, another one who was just a few years ahead of him, both in terms of age and professional experience. He was another enormously prolific writer, both on his own and in collaboration with C.L. Moore. That's Catherine Moore, who happened to also be his wife. 
Bradbury and Kuttner never officially collaborated in terms of story credit, but Ray said the last 300 words of his early story, The Candle, were written by Henry Kuttner. Kuttner wrote in many styles and genres, but he's perhaps best remembered today for the more humorous stories that he and C.L. Moore wrote under the pseudonym of Lewis Paget. Henry Kuttner died much too young. He was 42 when he passed away in 1958. Next up is Ross Rocklin. Would it surprise you at all if I said he was a few years older than Ray and a step or two ahead in the publishing game? Rocklin was yet another prolific writer, one of those who seemed to make a living from the pulps. And the Science Fiction Encyclopedia, by the way, says Rocklin had one of the most interesting, if florid, imaginations of the pulp magazine writers. And Ross Rocklin's prolificness, if that's even a word, only really declined due to illness, although late in life he did have something of a comeback with a highly regarded story in Again Dangerous Visions, the anthology. He passed away in 1988 at the age of 75. Virtually everything I've said about all these writers also applies to the next one, Robert Heinlein. Although he was the oldest of any of those I've mentioned so far, being born in 1907, which made him raise senior by 13 years. But of all of them, though, Heinlein was probably the most successful in breaking out of the pulp magazines into book publication. Like Bradbury and a handful of others, he somehow clicked with slick magazines and major book publishers. And in fact, in 1947, when Ray wrote his little parody of a self-bio, Heinlein was on the verge of publication of Rocket Ship Galileo, a so-called juvenile science fiction novel. Today we'd probably call it YA, or Young Adult. That book would be the inspiration for the 1950 science fiction film Destination Moon, and Heinlein had a hand in that film. Later, Heinlein would dominate or arguably define the science fiction field with novels such as The Puppet Masters, Starship Troopers and Stranger in a Strange Land. He was one of Bradbury's earliest mentors. He died in 1988 at the age of 81. Just two writers left on the list now. Jack Williamson. Jack was another one of those slightly older writers. He was born in 1908. He was prolific, like all of these people we're looking at today. His short fiction in the science fiction magazines really helped to define both the space opera and the time travel story. Think of all the variations on time travel and time paradox that you've ever seen in books and films. Well, Williamson was really there first. If you look for his Legion of Time series, you'll see what I mean. Williamson was also that rarity, a pulp science fiction writer who developed stylistically. And I can't help thinking that this was probably helped by the other strand to his career, because he was an academic. He gained a PhD in English literature and wrote his thesis on H.G. Wells. 
He also wrote an award-winning autobiography, which gives us a very rich insight into the early decades of the science fiction field from the insider's point of view. Jack Williamson died in 2006 at the grand old age of 98. And finally, last but not least, Edmund Hamilton. He was the oldest of these old-timers. He was born in 1904, which made him 16 years Ray Bradbury's senior. And that means that, most definitely, Ray was reading Edmund Hamilton's stories in his childhood. Hamilton appeared in Amazing Stories, the original science fiction pulp magazine, as far back as 1926, when Ray would have been six years old. In the 1940s, Edmund Hamilton married Lee Brackett, and Ed and Lee, the Hamiltons, remained best friends with Ray for many, many years afterwards. Hamilton died in 1977 at the age of 72. All of the writers I've discussed, all of these friends that Ray jokingly claimed wrote his stories for him, were older than Ray, and all of them took on a mentorship role to some degree or other. In most cases, Ray and friends would simply share drafts of their work for comment, and occasionally they would fix each other's stories. The kind of ghostwriting that Ray so humorously wrote about in that little bio didn't really happen, but there was just occasionally a bit of genuine collaboration, credited in the case of Henry Hassey and Pendulum, uncredited in the case of Henry Cotner and The Candle, or Lee Brackett and The Scythe. With the exception of Lee Brackett, who was phenomenally successful in Hollywood and in print, and with the exception of Robert Heinlein, who really is the epitome of American hard science fiction, I think it's fair to say that Ray was able eventually to soar above these mentors. He was one of the few writers from the pulp science fiction days to make it into the more mainstream slick magazines and into hardcover publication from major publishers. But without the help of those friends and mentors the help of older, wiser writers, I do wonder how the young Ray Bradbury would have got on. So, have you read any of these writers? Hassey, Brackett, Kuttner, Rocklin, Heinlein, Williamson, Hamilton? What do you think of them? Let me know. You can contact me via my blog at bradburymedia.co.uk or via Bradbury100 on Facebook. The article I read earlier is from Planet Stories, Spring 1947, and is in the public domain. I'll put a direct link to that issue of Planet Stories, so you can see the whole thing, on bradburymedia.co.uk. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon for another Bradbury 100. If you enjoy Bradbury 100 please give me a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. A five-star review will help others to find the podcast. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe to or follow the podcast using your podcast app. 
You can find us on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and all good podcast places. And don't forget to look for my Bradbury 101 series on YouTube and my other audio podcast, Science Fiction 101. For information on all of these and an endless supply of information about Ray Bradbury and his works, head to my website, bradburymedia.co.uk.